we have a problem in the Miller household. We have many problems, actually, in the Miller household. But uh, one of the problems we have is that two of our family wear glasses part-time. Two of the ladies, as it turns out. And uh, they have, I think, two or three pairs of glasses each. And uh, this means that every time we want to sit down and watch a video, there is this where's my glasses type of argument. And of course, the glasses look very similar. And uh, so, so I won't say who they are, but Heather and Katie often end up <laughs> crabbing around for gra- glasses and then suddenly putting on the wrong glasses. And of course, the screen suddenly becomes huge or the writing becomes blurred depending on which pair of glasses you're wearing. And uh, as I was thinking about this the other night when we were trying to watch a video, which was a great video, and took for ages to find these glasses, it got me to thinking about what I was going to preach on today. And I, I realized that the world outside these walls, they all wear glasses. There are many pairs of glasses the world wears. One pair of very familiar glasses is the glasses of tradition. The glasses that we've worn, our parents have worn and our grandparents before us that we've grown up with values and the way of living with our families and what we think is right and wrong and we wear them and we think the world, we see the world through those lenses. But of course a popular pair of glasses that many young people wear today is anything which is anti-tradition. Anything the parent says is rubbish. Anything that's gone before church or anything, rubbish, put it to one side, we're going to do everything new. But the most popular pair of glasses in our nation at the moment are a pair of glasses I would suggest you call the reconstruction glasses. They're glasses which change the perception on everything. And these glasses have become more and more popular actually over the last probably 50 or 60 years. When Nietzsche and other philosophers came up with ideas that God is dead, Time magazine in the 1916 60s ran with that title, God is Dead. We've now put on a glasses a nation where we believe that there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute reality, there is no sense of right or wrong, and we have been cast adrift in our world to make our own truth, to make our own destiny, to make our own brave new world, and to be gods and masters of the universe. The trouble with this is that when we wear these glasses, we suddenly stumble. We suddenly hit or encounter a problem as an individual, a death of a loved one or a problem in the nation which suddenly makes everything come to sort of right up there in your face. I don't know if you know, but the Humanist Society began this year with this great bus advertising campaign There probably is no God. So stop worrying and enjoy your life. What a year to say that. I I think when the psalmist says the God of heaven sits enthroned and laughs, stop worrying and enjoy yourselves, Great Britain. And then... The biggest economic disaster of 50 plus years hits Great Britain. A virus in a pig in Mexico has the effect of getting the whole world and our world shaken 
to the core. I was sitting in a coffee shop when I was traveling the other day and I just eavesdropping. Do you do this eavesdrop on conversations? Everyone was talking about the virus, this epidemic or pandemic or whatever it's going to be. Everybody was worried, sick. And I, was, I wanted to lean over and say, stop worrying, enjoy yourself. There's probably no God. God shakes this proud world and this proud nation. Why? So what cannot be shaken, that is, his kingdom may remain. This is going to click a bit, is it? Is this going all right? You keep an eye on me, Will. Run up here and hit me on the nose. I've been hit once this week. Hit me again. You know, Christians wear glasses as well. You've all come in here. You think, I'm just the only one wearing glasses. You've come in wearing glasses. Christians wear the glasses of tradition. You've grown up in a church in a certain way of doing things. Do you know one of the things I want to say to Winchester Family Church today is things have got to change. God wants you to put on new spectacles today and see the future from his perspective, not with the glasses of what has gone before. Because what has gone before can shape the way we do worship, the way we live our lives, the way we, 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 we come on a Sunday, our expectation. We put on those things and we think we know and we understand church and the reality around us. It's got to change. People are anti-tradition. Young Christians in this church may be saying, I'll blow everything that's gone before. Forget all that rubbish. Stand back. Here we come. But perhaps most worryingly of all are those that are putting on the glasses of reconstruction for the church today. The church is dead. The message isn't working. So let's reconstruct. Let's imagine life without church on Sundays. Let's imagine life without leaders. Let's imagine life without a Bible and without the gospel. Let's try and do church differently. And that is a very worrying trend. But for those who may be in any of those camps, or any, anybody here this morning who is perhaps worried about church and what's going to happen in the future... You should have read the Times yesterday. Anybody read the Times? Okay, go to the top of the class. Do you know the Saturday Review yesterday, the heading on the Saturday Review of the Times yesterday was, Spread the Word, God is Back. Good, isn't it? It said, Muscular Christianity is conquering the world. That was the heading. Muscular Christianity is conquering the world. And then it told stories. For those of us who think Christianity is on the decline, it told stories that 86% of those people who live, living in Russia today would identify themselves now as Christians that China is well on the way of being the world's biggest Christian country with conservative estimates of 80 million born-again believers today. In the United Kingdom, the Alpha Course has now seen 2 million people, this is reported yesterday, now seen 2 million people in the UK having done the Alpha Course. Do you know, Nicky Gumbel just recently... He said, at his conference, he said, there has been, 
across the nation, but particularly in London, they've noted this, a 20 plus percent increase in numbers going on Alpha Course. And he puts it down primarily to the humanist bus campaign. That's what he puts it down to. He said, people are coming in and saying, well, we've seen this bus and thinking there must be a God. Let's, let's ask some questions. Yes. The God, our God sits in the heaven and laughs. So, that's enough of the introduction. What am I talking on this morning? I'm aware of the time. We're going to, I think you're in the book of Acts. I hope you are, because this is, I've had to prepare this week for this message, and if you're not, John and I will have words over coffee. I'm going to look at Acts chapter 13. If you've got a Bible and you want to open it, that would be great. Please try and keep it on your knee as we just work through a couple of uh, points here. Acts chapter 13. Now, I want to say this. In the church at Antioch, anybody who's been in this church as long as I have, and you can remember back to the days when Reg and I were elders will remember that it has been spoken of this church, I believe this with all my heart, have lived out the prophetic purpose of this church. This church is called to be an Antioch church. A church which is an apostolic church. A church which has not just its own interests at heart, but the interests of a wider world that we're part of. So, it's very opposite that I'm reading from this passage. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, I'll come back to the latter verses in a few minutes, but I want to talk about, first of all, if I'd remembered to bring my dongle, you'd have had, are you sitting uncomfortably on the screen behind me? I think that's the challenge I want to bring. Are you sitting uncomfortably? Because church shouldn't be a comfortable place to sit. And if you are, I would suggest that the first heading is this, that you're sitting in your eye chair, your high chair, your eye chair. See, this meeting that we're reading of here was a dangerous meeting to be part of. It wasn't a boring Sunday morning. It contains familiar parts that we all say, oh yeah, we we have that on our Sunday mornings. They worshipped. They met together. Well, we love that. They prayed. Amen. Love prayer. Fasted. Well, for the keenies, yeah, okay, fasted. Praise God. And the Holy Spirit speaks. Well, we like that. We like prophetic. We've had prophecy this morning. Wonderful prophetic utterance. Scripture. Yeah, love it. But then suddenly there's this uncomfortable moment when God, the Holy Spirit, speaks and says, okay, take a couple of you. Pick a couple. Here we go. Barnabas, Saul, stand up. It's a change of direction, a change of your life. Things are never going to be the same again because God's speaking and you're going to go. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's leave this in the book of Acts. This is the sort of church life where we prefer to be reading in it and saying, that sounds great, but not here, not now, not this morning. See, there is no sense in these verses 
of asking for volunteers or a vote or drawing straws. Barnabas and Saul did not volunteer for missionary work. They responded to the activity of the Holy Spirit with faith. And it was in the midst, note this, of the community of the church with Ephesians 4 gifting operating. You see, the world there was in darkness. The world was in desperate need of light. And God's light broke in in a prayer meeting in the church. What this does, what these few verses do for us is they kick into touch any sense, any sense of eye chair mentality where we think that church is all about me, that church is all about itself, that church is, it, it doesn't care less about the world outside these four walls. What it does is it says that these meetings when we gather should be times when the fear of God grabs hold of us. And that we will be changed in a moment, in an instant, at any point, by the speaking of God, by the word of God as it comes to us. There are two eyes or eye chairs that you may be on this morning, which I want to try and knock you off. The first is institutionalism. Church can be stuck in ruts. I wonder if this one is stuck in a rut. I wonder if you're stuck in a rut. You know, almost to the point of, well, I've just heard it so many times, this challenge about what we're supposed to be. Well, nothing will change. I believe God wants to speak change to you this morning, as a church. I believe you've been this size far too long. Far too long. It's time to grow. Time to think about double meetings. It's time to think about name changes. It's time to think about being different from what you've been for the last 10, 20, 30 years, however long we've been together. You know, I'm with church leaders this week and they're reporting seeing 10, 15% growth in many of our New Frontiers churches. Many of our New Frontiers churches going to double meetings and seeing amazing numbers of people starting to gather as God is moving. Eastbourne, which is a church, which is a, a, a town of only 100,000 people, they had over 1,000 people to their Easter services. Amazing. Steve Tibbet, well over 1,000 people now coming to his three meetings. We need to be leaning into God as a church this morning. We need to be saying, God, what would you say to us? How can we grow? How can we reproduce? We cannot lean backwards and say, well, this is the way we've always done it. That's the way of death. When you drive across Wales, even across the south of England, there are many buildings, church buildings, that are now empty and dilapidated. In Wales you see chapels, beautiful Methodist chapels, that were put up for the glory of God, now converted into homes, now converted into sweet shops or coffee shops. Mission in churches, when I was a young man, if you were to be a missionary, the mission focus of the church was a little map in some way off room in the church with a piece of coloured wool and a yellow or red pin. That represented world mission. That represented some precious person or couple that have gone out and given their life to serve God. Mission was something for a few not for 
everyone. Vicar, vicars today, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible, elders living in their ivory towers. We get used to the way things are and we get comfortable. And we forget there is a priesthood of all believers. We forget that actually when God speaks to us as a church this morning, we're to hear God together for everyone. It's not just a private you and God thing. God speaks as the church gathers together. That's where God promised to be by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's where God promised to send us out, changed, to change this world. Are you ready for God to do anything? Or are you institutionalised? The second eye is individualism. And this is killing the church, we all know that. It's killing the church in two ways. Firstly, it's killing the church because Christians are claiming to have direct personal guidance with God without any reference to the church or its government. I see this again and again and again, wherever I go, unaccountable, super spiritual people that have cut themselves aloof from the church of Jesus Christ to do their own thing for God. These verses show you God speaks to the community. God gives gifts, Ephesians 4 gifts, and those gifts are used for the glory of God. And people say, that is right, that is God. Let's move with it. Prophecy is the most beautiful gift. But used wrongly drives lives to independence, into pride and aloofness and disconnection with the church, which it should never do. The second thing in individualism is emerging church. Emergent church, emerging church, you'll hear this more and more. As many people are abandoning traditional church and starting to flirt and play with a new ecclesiology, a new theology, which is very worrying. People rejecting the doctrine of the church, justification, propitiation, in favour of a much more creative, experimental, experiential, sensory experience which leaves its advocates in a sea of existential jargon. I, I was listening to the speaker or the, or the leader of, the, of, the, of America's biggest church and he was being interviewed on primetime television about the gospel. And he was asked what he thought about Hinduism. And he said, it's not for me to say that they're wrong. It's not for me to say, all I want to do is to say that Jesus is my way. Now, what a load of existential rubbish. The eye chair places vagueness at the high summit of spiritual maturity and uses language to conceal where they stand rather than make it clear where they stand. You hear this again and again as people are interviewed. It sort of sounds spiritual, but actually where's the truth? When you look at Jesus, when you look at the Apostle Paul, he doesn't go for vagueness. Both of them don't go for vagueness. They go for it is written. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wasn't sort of playing with words. He wasn't easygoing just parleying words. He made it very clear of the truth of the gospel. I want to ask you this morning as an individual and as a church, are you set apart for God? 
Are you set apart for the Holy Spirit? Are you set apart for God's greater purposes in the nation which are being unfurled even as I speak? God is shaking this nation and the church is coming forth. And it's coming forth robustly. Robust men and women for God who say, we're not going to put up with this rubbish any longer. We're going to tell the truth as we should tell the truth. There is one way. There is one God. His name is Jesus. And he's opened up a way to heaven. And we've got good news to share this day. So specifically, I want to bring two specific challenges. Because I've spent a week preparing for this morning. It's funny, isn't it? 40 minutes, you spend a week preparing, praying, thinking, mulling over it. These are the two challenges I want to bring under this sitting in your high chair or eye chair. Firstly, I want to challenge every go-it-alone believer in this place. How connected would you say you are to the elders and the vision of this church? I don't mean how do you come on Sundays. I mean, are you living what you hear preached Sunday by Sunday? Are you vitally connected to the heart of the church? Are you right in the heart of it saying, I speak, Lord, I want to be absolutely, fully on board. It's not my gift, my call, my ministry. There's too many mys in the church and it's more now for time of we. Together, we. I pray for my visit this morning is there will be a volunteer revolution in this church. That you will smash up your eye chair of immaturity and you'll get on the hot seat, which I'm going to come to in a minute, of the lifeboat that this church is to be. That John and the elders will be inundated with people saying, John, I've stood aloof, I've stood critical, I've stood a little bit on the edge, I'm pulling right into the heart of this church. I'm a kingdom man, I'm a kingdom woman, I'm going to serve God out there wherever I am, but I'm going to help build this church. But I also want to speak to John Groves, particularly, because this is an apostolic church and John leads that church. And I believe that you as a church, and that's why I'm sharing it publicly, it's not a one-on-one, I believe John is a very special gift to the church, to this church, but the wider church. I believe that's why in these verses you hear these, these wonderful things set apart for me, Paul and Saul and Barnabas. They have work to do. And I feel for you as a church to bring this and you can weigh it without me here. I believe you need to release John to a wider sphere of ministry increasingly. I believe he has an amazing translocal gift. I believe that's a teacher and a prophet. I believe he needs to shape us in our apostolic activity in what we have called Wessex, but it goes now into Portugal, into the West Country, it goes to India. I believe his teaching gift is wonderful. But it needs to be heard much, much more widely. I believe his prophetic gift has set us apart as a movement for the purposes of God. And I believe this, I believe he's too caught up with so much work and intense detail that he isn't being able to give himself to the bigger picture of God. I want you to pray for John and Marion. It's so easy to take for granted wonderful gifts that live within your church. A prophet's not without honour except in his hometown. And I want you to honour this man and pray for him because I believe there needs to be a release 
for the blessing of New Frontiers and the blessing of the wider church for John to a wider ministry. I believe he also needs to release people in this church to the nations. India is a harvest field that we've all been called to take responsibility for. And I believe in India the harvest fields are ripening. Now I want to finish by saying this. Secondly, God wants you sitting on a hot seat. Are you sitting on a hot seat this morning? You see, what this narrative goes on that they travel. Can you imagine these guys? Can you imagine them? There they are. They've been set apart. They came to a meeting and God spoke and wow, they're off. Can you imagine them on that boat? Where are we going to go? They're leaning over. They're watching the dolphins. Wow, look at this. The sea is in their face. The spray. Barnabas and Saul are chatting. We're going to go to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas grew up. Where should we go in? I'll take you to all my old haunts. Take you to the pub, the taverna. Take you to the synagogue. Let's see what happens there. Let's go and share the gospel in the synagogue and see what God's going to do. I'll take you around the olive groves. Take you right around the island. A lovely path, I know. And here we have the narrative, the biblical narrative. They travelled, the two of them travelled, verse 6, through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met the Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time unable to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Paul and Barnabas lived on the hot seat of God. They go into a situation, they have these dialogues, it seems to be going well, and suddenly they hit demonic encounter. Elemus Major, Elemus the expert, Elemus the skillful, Elemus the wise, Elemus the wizard, Elemus the saviour, bar Jesus. Immediate opposition. A man who wants to influence people by guile, by deceit, by trickery, through unholy spirits, to believe that there is salvation by another means. And now we see where real authority lies in this world. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to him, You are a pervert. You are a blind Guide. You are someone who pretends you know the way and you haven't got a clue. You are someone who hoodwinks people from the truth. Who People who are walking towards the light, you suddenly put a dark uh, robe or hat over their eyes so that they cannot see. Now, live in the power of what you believe and teach. 
You've advocated darkness and blindness, now live in it. And immediately, this poor guy's, hey, can someone leave me here? Hey, can someone hold my hand? Blindness comes upon Elemus. But the proconsul believes. The proconsul is saved. The proconsul becomes a disciple and sits under the teaching of Jesus. And then we find this story, as you're going to look at it, unfurling. Paul declaring the gospel, defending the gospel, demonstrating the gospel with individuals, with synagogues, with whole cities. And wherever he went, there was no one sitting comfortably. People suddenly found themselves on the hot seat. The challenge this brings to us this morning is very simple. The gospel challenges lives that are in darkness and turns on the light for those that believe. There is great darkness over our nation at the moment. There may be darkness in a person in this room, many people in this room. Following false spirituality, you follow your tarot cards, you follow the belief that all roads will lead to Rome. You follow someone who's promoting a different way to be saved, false teaching that has come to you, perhaps through a cult, perhaps through Ouija board and the occult. There are many who are claiming allegiance to Jesus today, but denying his deity, denying his humanity, denying his teaching. There are those who are closer to home, who asserting a religiosity is enough to save you. That alongside belief must come works in order to be saved. Forget They forget why we needed a reformation 450 years ago. I'm hearing this week about how diamond jewellers can recognise authentic, pure diamonds and fakes. And the way they do it, apparently, this person was telling me, is they are given a pure diamond to study. And they look intently at a beautiful diamond, they turn it to the light and they study this diamond. And then they look at what's put before them and they can immediately see the imperfect. They can suddenly see the flaw. They can suddenly see the one that is a fake. And if we are to preach the gospel, we must keep coming back to the glorious truth of what the gospel is. Do you know what the gospel is? Would you be able to articulate the gospel? I think one of the best descriptions we find that Paul gives is in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. 
The gospel is about Jesus. The perfect man. The man who was God. The man, the God-man who lived a perfect life and died the perfect death. Not for his sins, Paul says, for our sins. And this was according to the scripture, according to the plan of God, as revealed in the prophets in the Old Testament, Christ had to suffer. Christ died for our sins on that cross 2,000 years ago. He suffered the most hideous of tortures in his weakened, bloodied body. But also on the cross, he took upon himself the sin of the world. He took in his body the anger, the wrath, the, the judgment of God that is towards our sin. His perfect life, a substitute for our sinful life. Jesus didn't faint or swoon. He died. He died the perfect death and was buried. A corpse went into that tomb and a stone was set over it. And the gospel, the good news declares, three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. Eyewitness after eyewitness takes the stand in the court of human history and declares this wonderful truth that Jesus is alive. Jesus is stronger than death. Jesus is more powerful than sin and Satan and has opened up a way for everyone to be made right with God. His work is a finished work. Salvation is now open for all who believe. God makes the sinner right in his standing by faith in the finished work of his Son. The one who has died and has risen again is now exalted to the Father's right hand. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is God has done it all. That you and I can be made right. You and I can just pray this morning and be put right before Almighty God. Our sin can be dealt with. All the stuff we carry can be buried. And we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can be seen in Christ's finished work before the throne of God above. Every week now in Bournemouth, people are pressing in to know Jesus. People are pushing forward to know this Jesus and saying, actually, Guy, this morning, this moment, I believe. I believe the Gospel. And in those moments, God, by His Spirit, comes and people are wonderfully saved. Now, it might be someone here this morning needs to respond. I don't want to rush past this moment, so can you just bow your heads? God is well able to save. You haven't got to do anything. You haven't got to clean your act up this morning saying, I'm going to come to church ten more times and then God might like me a little bit more. God so loves you that he gave his one and only son. All you need to do today is to reach out to him, to reach out your hand and to believe and to trust. And you need to make the very first step. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're a backslidden Christian away from God, God is calling you home. This is the gospel. 
And if you need to respond to this gospel this morning, I want to pray for you. Now, I'd like you, whilst all heads are bowed, just if you need my prayer this morning, you want me to pray for you, could you just raise your hand right where you are, nice and high, because I am as blind as a bat. Anybody here this morning saying, actually, Guy, this morning I'm coming back to God. I'm believing in Jesus' finished work. Lord, I pray, let not one heart leave this room without surrender. Thank you for the wonderful gospel. We love it. We want to preach it. We want to demonstrate it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me just finish by saying this. What about those who refuse? Well, in a funny sort of way, this story is a parable of what happens eternally for those who refuse the gospel. Elymas receives what he's lived his whole life producing. He reaps what he sows. You see, hell and the finality of the judgment of God is only this. It says to those who choose darkness, it says to those who call darkness light and light darkness, okay, you want to live like that, you want to resist God, live like that for eternity. God's final judgment on mankind is thy will be done. Your will be done. You want to live outside of God, then choose darkness and live in darkness for eternity. Live outside the light. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Light came into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The proconsul, however, believes. And in believing shows the gospel is good news for everybody. And I want to finish by saying two challenges. I haven't got time to develop this, but as I said, this is one of the reasons I want to recommend this book. The gospel is good news for the poor. Are you finding as a church the poor? Are you going to where the poor are? Are you ministering to the poor? Are you giving so the poor can be reached? We had a baptism Sunday, I missed it. And there were, uh, I think, six people who got baptised. And these are their testimonies. I haven't got time to read them all. The first guy up was a black guy called Joe and he came along to our church in Bournemouth. He said, I was put into this church and something inside has changed. I went away from it and came back a year later and since then have never looked back. I feel a passion for the church that's just come over me. Jesus is now my saviour. He's my leader and I'm so grateful for him being in my life. A guy who was a heroin addict all his life. Gershoma, another lady from Africa. When I came to this church, I was homeless. I had nothing. I had only one suitcase with a few belongings in it and I was staying at the night shelter where I was frightened, I was petrified and I came to this church and I was in tears. I couldn't stand life much longer. I was actually suicidal and within 24 hours, it all turned around. Various people in the church believed what I was saying. They had mercy on me. They sorted everything out within a matter of hours. Within 24 hours, I was given a home, somewhere to live. My DSS was sorted out. A doctor was sorted out for me. Support was sorted out for me. It was a miracle, something I will never forget. What is Jesus to you, Gashoma? Jesus is my Lord, my Saviour, the head of my household, something that will never change. I did receive 
a miracle. We need to be going to where the poor are. Winnow, Stanmore, elderly, the people that are coming from other nations, asylum seekers, we need our radars put up as a church and realise God is bringing in a harvest field in our nation and we need to be alert to it. And just finally, in challenging you as a church this morning, it isn't just caring for the poor. God would challenge the materialism of this town and the materialism of this church. It came out in that prophetic word, I felt, when Dave prophesied about quicksand. You know, materialism is a God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus made it clear. But materialism... It's like quicksand. The more we get into it, the more we wriggle and struggle, the more we find ourselves getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And the way to break its power, I tell you, it's very simple, is to give. You read of the great people in our history. You read of John Newton. He said, for every penny you have for yourself, make sure you have a penny for the poor. He argued that we should live as Christians much, much more simply in order that we could give away more to the church and to the needy. He argued that we shouldn't open our houses in hospitality for our friends, entertaining. Scrap that, he said, for heaven. Entertain those who can never repay you. Get into your house, into your home, people that you can bless that will never be able to repay you. We might say in Winchester, there's nobody needy out there. Let me tell you, in Winchester, there are thousands of needy people. God wants us to bring them good news. I'd like to finish by praying for people. This time is almost gone, so I'd like the worship to come up. I'd like us to stand. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for this church. And I want to thank you that the best days of its life are ahead of it. I believe it with all my heart that you're shaking the nation and you'll be shaking Winchester too. As materialism is being shaken, I pray, shake this city to its knees. I pray as it begins a great series of harvesting for souls that this church would reap and reap and reap again, Sunday by Sunday, week by week. I pray the number of people being saved would increase and increase. I pray make a way for people to be added in this church. I pray give great grace to the elders. Give great grace to John Groves in order to build something which can take a harvest and enlarge a harvest. And Lord, I want to pray for every disconnected individual in this room. And I believe there are many. There are many of you who have heard this word who are very uncomfortable this morning. You can't wait to get out of these doors. I want to say to you, come back to the heart of worship. Come back to the heart of this church. Give yourselves. This is what will last forever. The gospel and what happens is the gospel is preached and demonstrated will last for all eternity. Everything else will fade away. Give your life to something that's going to last forever. I plead with you. My brothers, my sisters, those who are far off, come back into the heart of this church. Come back into the heart of worship. Lord Jesus, minister now. Draw people by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.